Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former mobster turned motivational speaker and author Michael Francis. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone. And today on the program, we're going a little bit outside my comfort zone. We're joined by a motivational speaker. He recently started his own YouTube channel, I think back in 2020. It's got over 90 million views. I don't know how much baseball he's ever played, but we're going to find out today. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) welcome Michael Francis. Michael, thanks for coming on the program. Uh, Thanks for having me, Brett. Easy one, right out of the gate. How do you describe yourself? Wow. Well, ex-mobster, obviously. I mean, I've had that tag for a long time. Spent over 20 years in that life. And yeah, motivational speaker, husband, father of seven children, six grandchildren, and probably the most blessed, most fortunate guy that uh, that walked the earth because um, it could have been a lot worse for me, Brett. But uh, fortunately, things have worked out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. It's, uh, you know, I've done a lot of uh, a lot of prep work, and I've been watching your YouTube videos, and they're fascinating to me. I mean, I I, I love watching. It's just different world, and and just everything's different about it. But I'm really excited. Uh, childhood. You grew up in. Uh, I think you're born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. What was Correct. Michael like as a little kid? Give me give me a snapshot of that. Sports? Did you play sports? I played sports. Baseball was really my sport. I was a diehard Yankee fan from birth, I think. Uh, Mickey Mantle was was my idol growing up. I I just loved the Mick. Uh, Went to a bunch of games my dad took me to when I was a kid. I played football and baseball in, in, um, you know, grade school and then in high school and for a year in college. Uh, so I loved it. I, I was a sports guy. I, now I play racquetball and golf and all that. So yeah, always been a sports guy. Yeah, I was a, I was a pretty good kid growing up. I mean, uh, my father was my idol, so I paid a lot of uh, attention to him. And you know, I think he taught me right. At least uh, you know I feel that way. And uh, I was going to be a doctor. My dad wanted me to go to school. He wanted me to stay off the street, even though you know that's what his life was all about. But he wanted me to get an education, so that's the path that I was following. Um, you know, I didn't get in much trouble. I had a, a tough mother. You know, I always say that I teach people, Brett. My dad, who was a tough guy, he didn't make me tough. My mother made me tough. She never spared the rod. Uh, but it, it was all good. You know, we had a we had a little different childhood because of the troubles my dad had. But uh, you know, we all survived it. Yeah, I was thinking about that real, real unique childhood you had, as did, you know, I did, too. I mean, I had a, uh, you know, and I I laugh about it now at the age I'm at now. I look back on my childhood. What what a what a cool childhood I had at the time. I thought, you know, this is normal and this is just dad goes to work. I go to work with him and and get to hang out Uh with all those Phillies. You know, some of my favorite times was those Phillies of the 80s hanging with Schmitty and Pete and. Luzinski and Tug McGraw and, and they were all my buddies wow. and I didn't think any I didn't think anything of it I'm like well that's just 
and what dad does. It's no big deal. And, yeah. it, and the cool part is my friends really normalized it too. I had a good bunch of buddies growing up where they didn't, they didn't make me feel any different. I didn't feel any different. And they, they acted like it was no big deal. So, so it was kind of cool, but I look back now and man, what a blessed childhood I had. And uh, then I was thinking about this today and I'm like, I wonder what that was like. You know, if, if I'd have bull over for, for a barbecue, who did Michael have over at the house? Who, Who'd your pops have over at the house in those days? Well, you know, um, for us, it was a little bit different because during the 60s, Brett, my dad, he was kind of like the John Gotti of, you know, uh, John Gotti's era. He was always under investigation, always a major target of law enforcement, always in the media. So I had a lot of the stuff growing up. Hey, your dad is a mafia dad and all that kind of stuff. I overcame a lot of it because I was a good athlete. And that means a lot to school. You know how that goes when you're an athlete. But, you know, I, I had some scuffs, you know, some scuffs at the, at the, in the, in the uh, schoolyard as a result of people saying, hey, you got a mouth for your dad and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the uncomfortable part was that back then, law enforcement investigation and tactics were very different than they are today. Today, everything is very covert undercover informants, high-tech surveillance equipment. Today, a guy can be under investigation, and he doesn't really know about it for a while. But back in my day, when my dad was uh, heavily under investigation, they wanted you to know about it. And for a period of about 10 years, when I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn and, and later Long Island, dad was under investigation from seven or eight different agencies, federal and state, and they would all have a car parked around our house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They followed us wherever we went. I got into some, you know, scuffles with them also, you know, because I didn't like them back then. So it was kind of when I look back at it. Yeah, it was normal for me back then. But when I look back, it was like, wow, it was a crazy way to live, you know. And uh, my father got arrested several times, went to trial three times during the 60s. We had to deal with all of that. So it was it was different. But, you know, in the house, I have to say, my dad tried to keep all of that stuff out. And in the house, we were a family. And he tried to uh, to make that happen um, as best he could. So within the house, we had some good memories. And later on in the podcast, we're going to talk about uh, how Michael and myself met. I don't even know if he remembers. It was years ago. It's a it's a really cool story, and we'll have that later later in the program. Um, I was thinking back, and and uh, you know, I I played a uh, I grew up in the game. I played a long time uh, in the big leagues, and. I don't remember how having too many interactions with, uh, you know, as we say, mafia or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I do remember I do remember one night and, and you can you can probably tell me right now it's fake or it was real. I was out after a game in Seattle in my hometown and I was at a. Just a, I don't know, it, was a, and it wasn't a nightclub. It was kind of a bar, but, you know, it was probably 11, 1130 at night. And I had some people with me. And we're just in there having a beer. And this guy taps me on the shoulder. He said, uh, Brett Boone. And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, I got my buddy over there. He, he'd really like to meet you. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of out and I'm, uh, okay. You know, I'm thinking it's a baseball fan. You know, he wants me to sign an autograph or something. So sure. I, for whatever reason, I mosey on over there and, and I, I sit down in a chair. Yeah. You know, this is so-and-so and I'm shaking hands with a bunch of people. And he looks at me, he goes, uh, yeah, I'm in the mob. <laughs> and, and I look at him, I say, really? He goes, yeah, I can do some things. And he sits down and starts talking to me. I, now, I'm in about 30 seconds, and I'm going, I've never had somebody ever approach me anywhere 
in any city I've ever been in that way. But he starts getting into details about things. Now, at this point, I'm a little uncomfortable and I kind of excuse myself and some guys I with kind of get me out of there. How likely was that real or was that just a guy kind of flexing at the bar because it's my city of Seattle? Yeah, well, let me let me tell you this, you know, any real guy in that life, you know, especially a made guy like I was a guy that took the oath would never would never approach you like that. And if they were, they, you know, shame on them. Um, That's number one. So that, you know, I seriously question that that guy was anybody of stature in that life. Number two, um, there isn't really a big mob presence in Seattle. Now, I know that for a fact. Um, so the chances of that guy being really, you know, a made guy or somebody of importance, I doubt it, but he could have been connected in some way. And, you know, you know, Brett, a lot of these guys on the street that were just associates and everything, they they didn't handle themselves really well. So it could have been that he was trying to impress you, but probably not anybody that you had to worry about. Let's put it that way. (laughs) You know, especially if he started telling you these silly things that he might have done. Right. Right. I'm I'm sitting there going, you know, all my time, all my travel in New York and no one's ever come up to me and said anything. You know, I maybe I'd rubbed elbows with some people. I never knew it. You know, and they would never maybe they didn't want me to know. Um, but, yeah, a guy yeah, just kind of you know, coming out. Go ahead. Especially you being in Philly where there was, you know, a big presence there. And you, know, right. you probably heard the name Nikki Scarfa and guys like that who I knew. I mean, you had a, you know, a big presence uh, in, in the city of Philadelphia. And, you know, nobody would approach you like that. That would be crazy. Uh, you end up going to Hofstra University uh, pre-med. 1969 at last a few years. Um, and you said you wanted to be a doctor and how did your path, uh, change in those, in those two years? Well, yeah, that's what my, my mom and dad really wanted that for me. And, you know, honestly, Brett, I was, uh, I, I, you know, I had an interest in it. Um, but I was doing it more for my father. This was really important to him at the time that I would be the one you know, educated college graduate in the family because he grew up as one of 19 kids and all of his brothers and sisters, nobody went through schooling or anything like that. So he was looking for that for me. But what happened is he goes to trial three times in the state of New York in the 60s for serious crimes, but he gets acquitted, found not guilty. Then in 1966, he gets indicted on a big federal case for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. He gets convicted. He gets sentenced to 50 years in prison, 5-0. 1970, he goes off to do his time. And I was a pre-med student at that time. I was in my second year. And he was 50 years old when he went in. Figured he had 50 on top of that. My dad would die in prison. He'd never come home. So that obviously was very troubling to me because I love my dad. And then Joe Colombo, who was the boss of our family and who I knew very well, my dad was his underboss, second in command. Uh, he kind of took me under his wing. Before you know it, I'm meeting a lot of my dad's friends. You know, Michael, why are you going to school? you got to help your father out. Um, I decided to leave school. I said, Dad, if I don't get on the street and help you out, you're going to die in here. And uh, in one visit that we had in Leavenworth Penitentiary, he proposed me for membership in that life because he said, hey, son, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. So he proposed me. Because, you know, you can't just go and say, hey, I'd like to join. Somebody has to propose you and vouch for you and all of that. And in my case, it was my dad. And that happened in uh, 71. Wow. All of a sudden, you're, you're studying to be a doctor. And now you're going into this life. 
did once you made that decision, you probably at the time, because of your upbringing, you, you had an idea what it was like. But but once you fully engaged and, and made that commitment, was it more than you thought it was going to be? Were you were you wide eyed or, or was it exactly how you thought it was going to go? Well, um, it, it was pretty much what I thought. I mean, I was, you know, I grew up with my dad. So he, even though he didn't, you know, tell me secrets of that life, because you're not supposed to with anybody outside of the life, I certainly had a good view of it. I knew what was going on. Um, so it wasn't like a shock. You know, the things that really got me about the life is that it wasn't always what it was, you know, billed to be with all the honor and respect. And I saw a lot of things that, you know, I'm going to be honest, Brett. I mean, I saw guys suffer serious consequences, um, and I think it was uncalled for. It shouldn't have happened. There's a lot of politics in that life. I mean, you know, I say this all the time, Brett. If you're a made member of that life, meaning you took the oath, and you die of old age, and you die free, you've really accomplished something because it's a tough life to navigate. So many things going on, you know, from within, and then you always, if you become a high-profile guy like myself, you know, you got the government after you all the time. So, I mean, you're constantly under scrutiny from your from your own people and then also from, you know, the government, law enforcement. So it's tough. I would think, too, in that there's there's got to be at certain points, you know, in sports, uh, if you're a if you're an entertainer, if you're a rock star, if you're an athlete, uh you get certain things give you a little bit of a wow, you know, a standing ovation from 50,000 people. It's a, it's a pretty unbelievable thing to have happen to you. Uh, wow. But I would think in that life, too, there are certain things where you're all, all of a sudden when you when you're going up the ladder in that world, you're all of a sudden you come to the you come to the steakhouse. You're getting the best table. You're kind of a celebrity on the street. And, and is there a s- certain sense of, uh, I, I don't know, the entitlement that comes with it? I know as, as a player, as a young player, uh, you know, through tough times, through good times, my big years, you get an ego. You start to have an ego. People open doors for you. People tell you, you you're this, you're that. You know, just pl- keep playing good. As long as you keep playing good, man, they'll do anything for you. And, and you do get a little bit entitled. Your subconscious takes over and you start to believe what people tell you. Is there anything like that in that world as as you move up that ladder? Well, yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, you know, people are catering to you all the time. You get in the ringside tables at the the best restaurants when they know who you are. Uh, People on the street are looking up to you. Everybody's trying to get close to you. Uh, You know, in my case also, Brett, you know, I, I became very high profile also. I mean, you know, my father had the name immediately when I got into the life, I, you know, it came right on me. And then I I was fortunate. I kind of, you know, was pretty successful in a number of things that I did. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I never thought I was invincible because I saw my father go down and I saw what could happen. What, what happened, it made me more aware and, and more understanding that at any time in this life, you can take a fall. So it kind of made me more careful it made me think things out more, I think, um, you know, so it had kind of the reverse effect on me. But yes, I mean, look, you, you, you get a kind of an ego thing and you have to control it because ego in that life is very dangerous, too. I mean, you see what happened with John Gotti. When you when you take that to another level and think you're invincible, that's when you're really in trouble. That's the start of your downfall. 
And, um, you know, but yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's a thrill. People ask me all the time, Mike, what do you miss about the life? Is it the money? Is it the power? And I say, well, yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, that was fun. You know, you like that. But it was really the camaraderie among the guys. I mean, you know, we, we had a, I got your back, you got mine. It's kind of like sports in a way. You know, you're a team. You're together. You got each other's back. It's, it's a thrilling, you know, feeling to know that wherever you go, in our case, around the world, you know, we had people all over the place that knew who we were. And, uh, and we were immediately taken in. So there's, there's a good feeling. There's a high in that, no doubt. When you first started, and I thought about this, uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you know, certain kids are going to resent you. Oh, that's so-and-so's son. You're coming into that world as your dad's son. So were there parts of that world, people in that world that, oh, wait a minute. Yo, it's his son coming in. Or did you have to prove yourself before you had full acceptance? Well, here's the thing. There is a lot of nepotism in that life. You know, parents, uh, dads wanting to bring their sons, their relatives, and mainly that's a security reason. You know, you're, you're living a criminal lifestyle and you want to bring people in that you could trust that are not going to eventually cooperate with the government that have your back, that won't betray you because there's a lot of betrayal in that life. So you bring your family in a lot. Now, I'll explain something. When I got into the life, I became a recruit, meaning I had to prove myself for a couple of years uh, in 1971. Uh, Actually, 72 is when it really started. And I became a made guy. I took the oath in 75. So for three years, I had to prove myself. During that time, from the 1950s through 1975, they had an expression on the street where the books were closed, meaning they weren't bringing any new guys into the family. The only way you can do that is if somebody died, you can replace them. But they weren't recruiting any more new guys. It was basically basically for security reasons. In 1975, they opened up the books. So what happened was I was you know, a young guy. I was 24 years old. And guys were waiting 15 and 20 years to become members of that life to take the oath. So, yeah, immediately I had resentment because I was one of the first guys that got made when the books were open. I was in the first batch. And, yeah, they did that, you know, for my dad because my dad deserved that kind of uh, courtesy. But I also had to prove myself. They don't let you in just because you're, uh, you know, somebody's son. And you got to prove yourself. And uh, so, yeah, and, and, you know, during my younger years in that life, I had a lot of resentment from the older guys because they, they think, hey, you know, we've been here 20 years and, you know, this young guy's coming in. And so I, I guess the same on the street sometimes. I mean, uh, you know, in, in the legitimate world, rather, where you have resentment from senior people that have been in a position longer than you. So I had to deal with a, a lot of that for a couple of years. Another story I had for you, I wanted you to clarify. I'm a young kid. I'm playing for the Cincinnati Reds. We have an off day in New York. And, you know, I've kind of, whenever they tell the, the rookie, hey, you're going with us tonight, you know, then I'm going. All right, we're going to Sparks Steakhouse. <laughs> and this wow. is Sparks back before. It's kind of now the new Sparks. It's kind of commercialized. Bring the kids out. But this is in the early 90s. And uh, my first experience going to Sparks. I go to Sparks. I swear, maybe I'm wrong. But there was a Cadillac parked out front with the windows taped. I don't know if that was a, a landmark or what it was. I do remember that. But I walked in and I'm like, wow, this is kind of like a cool, low down steakhouse. And I remember sitting at Sparks 
and I looked in the back room, guys dressed head to toe in black. And my buddies who, who were Red's teammates said, yeah, I think that's where the boys hang out in there. It really looked like whether I was right or wrong, kind of out of a movie. I want to know early 90s. That's the that's the uh, timeline. Would that have been accurate? Was that a place where where that world went on? Absolutely. I mean, you nailed Oof. it on that one. You know, uh, Castellano uh, got hit in 19, it was 1986. Um, it was actually December. Oh, wait a minute. It was 80, 85 or 86. 86 it was. That's when he got hit. And the car out front might very well have been because I know that Sparks, Sparks went like off the map after that incident happened. You know, the business was never better for them. It became a tourist attraction. Everybody wanted to eat there still till today still happens so you might have seen the car parked out there that paul castellano came in that's very possible i know they were they were uh you know playing that out for a while and yeah definitely guys in the back room i mean that was a place that we frequented so you you probably saw the real deal back there okay sticking with hollywood and my movie theme um pet peeve of mine and it drives me crazy and i don't know why i love watching I love watching gangster movies. I love, you know, all the movies that everybody loves casino and, you know, the ones you've been asked about, I'm sure a million times, the Godfather, but for me as a baseball player and I'm a movie buff, I love movies, but when it comes to, Oh, we're making a baseball movie and I go watch the movie. I am so critical and it drives me crazy. The nuances that are in the movies The it seems to me like a Hollywood director knows nothing about really what it's like. But if he thinks if he could just put tobacco in every player's mouth, all the actor's mouth and have them spit. Oh, now they're big leaguers. And it drives me nuts. And and I don't know if that's a, I, I watch a few. I like a few. I think Kevin Costner, for the most part's done a really good job. And if you look at a movie like Bull Durham, which kind of, chronalize it you know it it shows what it's like in the minor leagues for the most part it really is but i'm i'm so cynical i'll I'll sit there and i'll pay oh well that isn't right like when they with in bull durham when they go and they flood flood the field and get uh, a rain out you would never get into a city in the evening and miss a complete day because that means you'd have to pay for a hotel night and in a ball they're not getting another hotel so you always you always go on the road and you arrive the day of so if if i could find anything in that movie it was that so that that's what i am when it comes to sports movies i'm so critical and it it just it's nails on the chalkboard for me uh you're doing it now on your youtube channel you're breaking down these movies when you see a new movie coming out and it's going to portray the life that you were in are you like me are you are you critical of it or or do you just take it for its for its value what what it is on the screen no, I'm I'm absolutely extremely critical like that, you know, because when we get portrayed or when those movies are portrayed as corny or cheesy, it drives me crazy when the dialogue isn't right, when guys don't have the right mannerisms. As a matter of fact, you said something. They're now doing a television series based upon my life, and um, it's getting ready to go into production shortly. The writer, Ron Shelton, who actually wrote a number of uh, – um, Kevin Costner's movies. I think he wrote Bull Durham. Great writer. You know, he's 70 some odd years old. Great guy. But he's a California kid. He's born and raised in California. So when he started writing the script, or just before, I said, Ron, okay, I love you. You're great. But you come from California. You don't know how we talk in Brooklyn. And you don't know the mannerisms. I said, the one deal I got to make with you 
is you got to give me that script and I got to clean up your dialogue because I know you're not going to get it right. And that drives me crazy. And to his credit, he welcomed it. He said, yeah, no problem, Michael. We want this as authentic as possible. I said, because if I can't be involved in an authentic movie about my life, I won't even bother because I've been approached so many times over the years. So, uh, and we came up with a script, you know, a pilot that I, I'm really pleased with. And, and he's got a couple of years done on it, you know, episodes and all that. But uh, yeah, so let me, let me take it a step further. Donnie Brasco, that movie, Goodfellas, obviously, Bronx Tale, the 1996 HBO Gotti movie, brilliant. I mean, Armand DeSante uh, and Anthony Quinn were so brilliant in that movie, and it was very realistic. Um, they were great, you know, great movies. I mean, there's always dramatic liberty taken. You understand that. But the dialogue and the way the characters portrayed, the, uh, you know, the real characters was just great. And, and you got to love it for that. So I always and even Casino, another good one. I mean, anything Joe Pesci does, De Niro, Pacino, these guys are great. Um, and Scorsese directing, you know, he's, you, you can't miss with him. He's very authentic. So, you know, that's good stuff. But I'm the same as you, Brett. Same exact way. It's amazing when you say that the actual dialogue, how we talk to one another, you're right, because it'll drive me crazy in an interview, uh, listening to the radio, hearing a, a broadcaster that says, uh, well, he's throwing that ball fast or, or anything. I was like, no, it, it the, the lingo is so easy. He's got a good heater. He's throwing the two seamer. He's bringing it back. Uh, Front door, back door. It, it's easy terminology, but people that get it wrong and they do it so much in the movies. It drives me. Uh -huh. I mean, you're, you, you just hit it with me when you talk about just the little things, how we talk to one another, the lingo, the dialogue, not only what we say, how we say it. It, because it really is when you're when you're putting your name on something, you're like, if you're going to do it, let's do it right. And, and I'm just like you. It drives me crazy. You know, Pesci Pesci seems to be at all the movies that I've seen. He seems to be the guy that that best portrays it. But what do I know? Out of all those movies, it, my favorite, by the way, is uh, it's not really Mob. I, well, maybe it is. I, I like Blow with with Depp. That was that was one of my favorites. But you know, everybody loves Goodfellas. Everybody, Godfather, Casino, Donnie Brasco. You mentioned another Depp movie. Um, out of all of them, what's your opinion? Who are, who portrays that life the best out of all the actors you named? And there's been a lot. Marlon Brando, one of the originals. Okay, I'll get specific. Take Godfather 1 and 2 and just put them on the side for a minute because not only were they brilliantly done, but they're probably two of the best movies ever made, you know, in the history of Hollywood. So everybody was amazing in, that, in both of those movies. Even though it wasn't a real accurate portrayal of the life in many ways, it was just so brilliantly done. Um, you know, I, I can't say enough about it. Uh, I'm going to give you a tip. If you haven't watched Paramount Plus uh, The Offer, which is the prequel to The Making of the Godfather, watch it. It's a television series. It's 10 episodes, um, and it's brilliantly done. Again, they take dramatic li liberty, but – and that was my era. I was very close to what was going on with Joe Colombo and The Making of the Godfather back then. But I guarantee you'll enjoy it, Brett, and it's, it's so well done. But So put them aside. Joe Pesci, brilliant. I mean, he kills it every time he's on. And I knew guys that acted exactly like Pesci. He's got the lingo down. He grew up around it. He gets it. Bronx Tale. 
Uh, Chaz Palminteri, who's a dear friend of mine, he nailed the part of Sonny in that movie, you know, perfect. His, his actions, his mannerisms, his dialogue, terrific. Al Pacino, um, he's always a brilliant actor, but I thought his greatest role was in Donnie Brasco as Lefty Ruggiero. I knew Lefty pretty well, and Pacino just nailed it. Unbelievable. But now let me get to my number one, top number one, <laughs> you know, performance, I believe. Again, it's Armand DeSante and Anthony Quinn in HBO's Gotti movie that was uh, produced in 1996. So I, I just can't rave enough about him. It, it was amazing. That movie was very accurate because, again, I was very familiar with everybody in that film. And they took that script right off a lot of the uh, tapes that were, uh, you know, the surveillance tapes that were on Gotti and, and, and uh, Angelo Ruggiero at the time. So it was very accurate and just absolutely brilliant. Everybody that I've told to watch that movie comes back with the same thing. Unbelievable. So, uh, and, that, and that, you know, they were all real characters. I mean, they, they captured it wonderfully. So watch that movie. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. Without a doubt, I will. Um, so now it comes to the, the time when, when uh, I first met you. And uh, I don't know if you remember it. I think it was in, shoot, in 90 sometime. I, I believe I was with the Reds. So uh, let, let me let me give a little backstory to the audience. Uh, every every year in spring training, in, in big league spring training, there's there's several uh, several events we have. One is picture day. We got to take every picture on the planet. You know your baseball cards. You got to do spots, uh, advertisement for the team, whatever. That's picture day. Another day you'll have alumni day. The alumni will come in. They'll raise a bunch of money. They'll talk to you about the pensions for the for the old timers. And then there's a day where they bring in uh, the FBI. And there's a theme every year. Some years it's uh, what to look out for. It could be drugs. It could be uh, women. It could be uh, it could be drinking and driving. But the FBI is always kind of one that that the big leaguers look forward to because they know it's going to be a, a cool event. So we're in spring training in in the nineties with the Reds, and it's FBI day, and we're always one. Hey, what I wonder what they're going to bring today. It's always something cool that the players end up you know, getting a kick out of. So Michael is the, uh, <laughs> he's the headliner here, but we don't know he's the headliner. And I forget, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just using this off the top of my head. It was a 60 minutes uh, or, or, or a show uh, like 60 minutes. And it's all about Michael Francis and his life. And then eventually it leads to you getting arrested. And it's this kind of dark. Wow. If you're not in that world, you know, we're still like we're watching a movie like, ooh, that's the, the dark side of life. All of a sudden we end. It's kind of a it's kind of a moving piece. And, uh, you know, we're getting ready. We're, we're shaking hands and getting ready to go on to wherever we do. I think we got to go stretch. And out walks Michael from behind the television. And I'm telling you, I've never seen guys react like that. They're like, oh, like, like he's not real. There he is. You could touch him. And you gave us a speech that day and basically told us what to look out for because you wanted to come into our life. You wanted to be our friend. And it was really a moment that, that I, I took with me and I thought about it and I'm like, wow. That was that was a really interesting side. What do you remember? Because it wasn't just the Reds you were doing that year. I'm, I'm assuming you went down to, around to all the spring training camps and spoke to all the teams. Uh, what do you remember about that? And, and 
is that pretty much pretty much some is that an accurate dis- description of of how it went down? Oh yeah, I, I remember it very well, uh, Brett. Because I give you a little backstory. That was a life changing uh, experience for me. It's what put me on the road to where I am today. I'll explain. I was finishing up an eight year prison sentence. I was in Lompoc Federal Prison. And for the last 29 months and seven days, they had me in solitary. They had me in a hole, six by eight cell, 24 seven. And they said the, the government was mad at me because I wouldn't cooperate. They wanted me to testify in a few cases. I refused. So as a result, they kept me in solitary and they're really trying to break me. And it was tough. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's, it was tough, especially for that length of time. So about six months before I'm ready to come home, the warden calls me into the office and he says, there's somebody here that wants to speak to you. And it was two FBI agents. And I said, look, I don't want to talk to you guys. Leave me alone. I got six months. I'm going home. I'm done with this sentence. And they said, we have a favor to ask you. I said, I don't want to do any favors for you guys. They said, just listen. They said, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NFL, NHL are coming together to do an anti-gambling video. And we want you to participate in it because I had, you know, a number of bookmakers that work with me on the street. We had athletes gambling with us all the time and, and other personnel, you know, involved in sports. So I said, I, I don't do that. And, you know, what, what are you talking about? And they said, well, listen, uh, if you agree to do this, we're going to sweeten the pot. We're going to take you out of uh, prison for three days. We're going to put you in a hotel in Chicago. That's where they're filming it. And they said, you know, you got a king size bed and you can order room service and you, you film this video, you know, just tell them how you put these athletes in trouble and why they should stay away from guys. And I said, three days outside of prison. I said, sign me up, man. I'm ready to go. I said, get my wife in the room with me. I said, I've been down eight years. I'd love to have her there too. So they, they laughed at it. We had an earthquake that uh, summer. I mean, that day that they were supposed to take me out. So I couldn't go out. But NBA Productions came in and filmed the video. It was 20 minutes. That's probably what you're referring to. And then um, when I got out of prison, Kevin Hallinan, who was the head of security for Major League Baseball, approached me directly. Yep. And they featured me prominently. And he said, Michael, we need you to come and speak to our players. And at first I didn't. I said, look, I don't do that. You know, let's talk to them. It's not what I do. And he I'll never forget, uh, Brett, you'll appreciate this. You know, Kevin was an ex-homicide detective from uh, New York. And he looked at me and he said, oh, big, tough mob guy. You're afraid to speak to some athletes? I said, set it up. I'm going, right? And that's how it started. So in 96, I think it was, I started, I went through every team in spring training. We did a lot of the uh, minor leaguers. And I did that for a while. I was doing the minor leagues for quite a while. And then uh, in 1998, the NCAA brought me in. And I've spoken at over 350 universities uh, since then. I still do some of that now when they call me. Um, but it was an experience I'll never forget. I met everybody. I, I just enjoyed it. And from there, it's what got me on the road to becoming a professional speaker and an author. So it was kind of a really a life-changing experience for me, something I never thought of, I never dreamed of, I never had it in my mind, nothing. But it's, it's crazy how things happen in life. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the guys do remember. I guess it's not very often when you have an ex-mobster come in and talk to you about anything. So, uh, you, you know, your brother Aaron remembered me, too. So that that's that's a good feeling, though, to know that we at least uh, made some kind of an impression. Hopefully we did some good for a lot of the players. I, I think it was really impactful. I mean, still to this day, I could mention it to any big leaguer that played in the 90s and they'll remember 
that spring training, you coming out because it was different. You know, we always like I said, it was always that meeting with with Hallin, uh What's the last name? Hallinan. Hallinan. Kevin Hallinan. Yeah. Kevin. Yeah. His meeting was always the best one. It, it was every year. It, it never let us down. But that one was extra because it really was. It was that, ooh, that guy's not real. <laughs> He's the mean well, guy coming out from behind the you know TV. What? And everybody reacted that way. Well, I got to tell you, Kevin had a flair for the dramatic. He brought me in in different ways. There was one time, I forget where we were, but there was a tent set up. And all the players and everybody were in that tent. And he had me pull up in a limousine, a black limousine, coming from the back with two, two guys that were ex-cops that were like my bodyguards, and he had me walk up on the stage after that video played, and Brett, you could have heard a pin drop in that place. I'm telling you, it was like everybody was like in shock, like, what's going on here? But that was Kevin's doing. He had a flair for the dramatic, and, uh, and it was effective, no doubt. It had to be cool for you, though. You're probably getting the gig going well. It gets me out of, you know, it gets me out on the road doing something. How You probably didn't know how it was how it was going to go, uh, you know, the unknown going into it. But then you saw the reaction. Was it always the same reaction? Because I remember you're right. Our reaction was like mouth open. He's really here. And and uh, yeah. was it was it like that time after time? Like, wow, there's the guy. <laughs> Brett, every single time. I mean, through all of the pro sports, because I've done a lot of the NBA also. I've done a lot of uh, uh, NFL teams. You know, I've got friends with Bill Belichick and all of, you know, the coaches that we've done. It was always very effective. I'll tell you what I do, Brett. You, you'll laugh at this. Your, your, your audience might appreciate it. When I go into a, a college and we do the football team sometimes, right, I tell the coach, I said, listen, I want all the uh, linemen up front. I want them in the front row. And he said, why? I said, just put him in the front row, you know? So he puts him in the front row, and I'll go to the biggest guy, uh, you know, on the, on the row of seats. And I'll say, you, stand up. I go, just like that. And he'll look around like, well, I said, stand up. What are you, three, three times my size, stand up, right? And I'm doing this theatrically. So he'll stand up, and I'll say to him, listen, on the field, I'm no match for you, man. I said, you would crush me in a second. Nothing would happen. I said, but I'll tell you what, big guy. I draw this imaginary line with my foot. And I said, you stuck over that line and you come into my world, I'm going to make a sissy out of you. You won't last two seconds with me and my guys. And he just looks and then I say, sit down. And he slowly sits back down in his seat. It's, it's amazing. The whole mob thing is really in their heads when I'm in there. And, and it, it really had an impact. And, you know, I, I've gotten so many, you know, accolades and nice messages and emails from guys throughout the years that uh, just enjoyed the presentation. So, yeah, it's satisfying to hear that. But, you know, more than anything else, you know what, Brett? Every time I leave university and I speak to all the sports teams, you know, men, women, the whole bit, I tell them, if you have a gambling issue or somebody's around you that you're not sure of, I said, email me. I don't work for the school. I don't report to anybody. You don't even have to tell me your name. But I want to advise you. I want to help you out of a bad situation. Do you know this, Brett? But it never failed, not in one school, over 300 and some odd universities. By the time I get back to my hotel room, I have an email from one of these student athletes that are going through some kind of an issue. It's never failed yet over the years. Wow. And, and that's pretty cool. I mean, from, from where you've been, you've been in prison and to turn your life around and, and to really get out and educate people and, and help 
not only athletes, but um, help people in general. What stuck with me is I remember you looking up and, and for those of you uh, listening to the Boone podcast, Michael's like a cool guy. He's a cool Italian. And I remember you kind of saying that to us like, hey, look at me. I'm a cool guy. I want to be your friend. You want to be my friend. I got stuff for you. I got drinks for you. I got this. But I'm after one thing. I'm after information for my for my gambling racket. I, I, I kind of remember that. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. And, and that's yeah. exactly what I would, would tell the athletes. You know, I want to you want to be my friend. You know, I'm going to you want women around you. What do you want? Anything I can do. But I want information. And and I, I tell them, I say, listen, you fall one time. You get in with me one time. That's it. You're finished. I'm never going to let you go. And uh, it and it's true. I mean, that's how guys on the street operate, you know. And I tell them, you know, we're not in awe of you. We don't care if you're the best player in the league or the worst. If we can get information out of you, that's all you are to us. And uh, and guys, it, it hits home, and that's the truth, Brett. You know, for many many guys, not everybody, obviously, but for many guys, you know, athletes have to beware because guys are out there. You know, gamblers. All they want is information. I mean, that's it. You know, they'll use you and, and do whatever they can to get information out of you. And if it, if it hurts you or, you know, hurts your career in a way, a lot of guys don't care about that. So you got to be careful who you hang with. Really interesting stuff. Um, you did a movie in 2017 with Kevin Sorbo, Let There Be Light. Um, interesting, different different for you or was it the first time you did you did on-screen stuff or or i don't know brett they had they had to twist my arm i'm not an actor and i i don't want, i mean i've done a lot of documentaries but i'm being myself talking right you know, like i'm talking right. to you now but you know kevin and the writer dan gordon um they just really put pressure on me it was a christian film i didn't want to do it i said listen guys I don't, I don't even read my own notes when I get up on the stage. I said, I'm, I'm not, you know, reading a script and doing stuff like that. But, you know, they didn't take no for an answer. They did not. They said, listen, we wrote this. It's practically you. It's your character. And I said, oh, my God. So, you know, it's funny. I went to my wife and I said, do you believe this? They want me to be in a movie. That's not, I can't do that. And she always says no to everything. You know, anytime, hey, should we do this? No, 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 right off the bat, right? And then maybe she'll come around and say yes. So I tell her, I said, I'm not going to do this. And she says, well, why not? You should do it. It was like the first time, something I didn't want to do. She said, you should do it. So that's how it came about. And I'm not going to do it again. I'll tell you that. It was uh, one experience. I enjoyed it. They were great. And people said, you know, I did a good job, but I was playing myself. I mean, they, you know, I was a pastor that had a background like I had. That's how it was. So, but yeah, it was an enjoyable, but it was a one-off. I mean, I might appear in my, uh, as a cameo in the uh, television series. They want me to do that. But there again, it'll be two seconds on and off. That'll be it. Speaking of the film, uh, remind everybody, you got a film that's it's pretty much a documentary of your life. Who's going to play you? No, it's it's a scripted series. It's um, I'm really oh, excited about it. Yeah, it's a scripted television series. I can't, and they just signed the person to play Michael, and now they're signing the person to play my father, but they begged me. They said, Michael, until we make an announcement, please don't say anything. So I can't say anything who they got. It's a, it's a popular guy. I'm happy with him. Uh, but there'll probably be an announcement, you know, sometime over the summer because they're trying to get in production by the end of the uh, by the third by the fourth quarter of this year. 
So, uh, but I'm excited about it. It's really well written. I can tell you the production company, it's Kennedy Marshall. They're huge independent company. As a matter of fact, their, their movie, uh, Jurassic Park just came out. They did the whole Jurassic Park series. Um, so they're great, you know, great in the business. And, uh, I'm very excited about the team that they put together. So I think it's going to be well done. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it and, uh, we'll see how it goes. And yeah, I won't press you on who, who the guy is. Not that you tell me anyway, but how much when it, when it comes some, to something like this, how much do you think or have you had interaction, interactions with them so far? Because I'm thinking I know how these actors are and they want to pretty much really get into this character. They want to shadow you and, and just give me all the information, Michael, you can give me. Has that started already for that? Well, we had a, a lengthy conversation when um, it was decided whether he was going to come on or not. And he had read the script and he read my background and, you know, he knew of me. So he was pretty enthused with it, pretty excited about it. And then he said, he said, look, when we start, Mike, I want to spend a lot of time with you. I want to make this as accurate a portrayal as I possibly can. And I said, fine. I said, you know, when the time comes, you know, I'll be on the set. But, you know, I have different titles on there, consultant and producer and all that stuff. I said, so I'll be there. I mean, I want this to be authentic. And I spent you know, literally about a hundred hours with the writer while, while he was writing this, because it's when you do a television series, it's not only the pilot script that you write, but you have to give them like a summary of three seasons, 10 episodes a season. So we went through every episode and, and, you know, what this is going to be like. So it was a, a two year time consuming process just to develop it. Um, so I'm intimately involved in it in that way. But again, the production team is very capable. They're great. I'm just there to lend my assistance and try to give them whatever help they need, uh, you know, when they get it going. But I'm excited about it. You know, Brett, 20 years, I've had so many people approach me and it just never felt right to do it. And then um, just before the pandemic hit, I met with these people and I said, you know what, I'm getting older. If I if I die, somebody's going to probably do it anyway, unauthorized. So I may as well do it and, and make sure it's done right. And that's how it happened. Make sure the mannerisms are right. <laughs> oh, uh, I promise you that. Uh, we were talking uh, off off Mike earlier about uh, you're a huge Yankee fan, and and we call him here at the at the podcast. It's it's not my brother Aaron. It's Uncle Aaron now. Uncle Aaron's doing a good job. Your Yankees are kicking ass. Oh my God! I'm telling you, I'm so excited. I am, a, Brett. I'm probably the number one Yankee fan, and my two boys. That they had to be Yankee fans growing up. That was it. And uh, we are so excited. I don't miss a game. You know, I got it on my phone every day at four o'clock. I was mad. I was in New York over the weekend doing some things and we had the black, you know, you're blacked out when you have major league baseball, uh, app and I was blacked out in New York, but man, are they kicking butt? I mean, Aaron's got them. Everything is going right and they're in sync and, and, uh, it's very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. And that for the most part, they've been healthy and, and, uh, they are doing yeah. a good job, you know, and, and I've been watching my brother and, and you, you, you know how it is in New York. Just, it's a different world in New York. I love it. It's my. It was my favorite place to to go. Yankee Stadium for uh, for a road trip. I just love everything about it. And you know, we were talking earlier. I love walking out of that hotel at at noon and walking down the street and and just having those New York fans scream at me from across the across the boulevard. Boone, you suck. We're gonna kick your ass. <laughs> That's what it's it's all about. And when you get to Yankee Stadium, especially old Yankee Stadium, you know you're somewhere special. And uh, 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped for them. They're out of the gate. It's a long season, but uh, they're off to about as yeah. good a start as I could imagine. Um, and I heard you got well, a cameo okay, from Eric. You got a cameo. Share that with me. I got a, oh, man, it was one of the guys in my inner circle. I had this group, a community, you know, that we, we do a lot of things with. And so it was my birthday uh, in May. And he sends me this cameo from Aaron and just blew me. I, I tell you what, it was the most exciting thing <laughs> that happened to me. You know, I, and I'll tell you another thing that was funny, too. You know, I um, he just said some nice things. He said he remembered me. And it was just so great hearing from him. Then I got really upset. Not with that. But uh, Chaz Palminteri is a friend of mine. He knew I was coming into New York. We were going to do something together on Sunday. Well, Friday night, he calls me and he says, hey, Mike. We're going to go to the Yankee game uh, Saturday. You're going to be my guest. We're going to, you know, sit in a restaurant and so on and so forth. And I said, Chaz, I live in California. I said, it's Friday night. There's three hours time difference. There's no way I can get in in time. You're crazy. Why didn't you give me some notice? Well, I just thought about it. So anyhow, Saturday night, he's there. I'm not there. And he's on the Jumbotron all night. They're talking about Chaz and everything. I would have been sitting next to him. We would have had a great time. Anyway, it, we'll do it again. But, you know, um, there was one time when I was, what was that called again? When, uh, you know, the international baseball series was going on before the season started. I, I forget what they called it when, you know, players from different teams represented different countries. Oh yeah. 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 I, I don't know where it was, uh, this year. Yeah. But it's, I know what you're talking about. It's the international, yeah. you know, it's, it's Cuba and yeah, Korea world, and, and world Japan, world, world cup, world cup. Yeah. Well, anyway, world base, world baseball classic. There we go. World baseball classic. So I think it was either in the early 2000s, late 90s. That was going on. Spring training comes. So I go to the Yankees and everybody's gone. Jeter was gone. A-Rod was gone. Nobody was there because they were all in different teams that they were playing for. So I called up Hallinan. I said, Hallinan, a lot of my players, I'm not going to get to meet them. The Yankees, the one thing that got screwed up, the team I wanted to see. So he says, well, we're not doing those teams, right? So I said, all right. You know, then he gives me a call. I was in Arizona and he said, guess what? We are doing that. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. So we do that particular team. I forget which one it was. But I'm standing in the clubhouse in the middle of Derek Jeter, Posada, Al Leiter, A-Rod, and I'm sitting there, this big, tough mob guy, and I'm trying not to show my excitement with all these players that are like my heroes because I'm such a crazy fan. And they're all kind of, you know, peppering me with questions. And I just wanted to, I wanted to question them. I didn't want to be the one in the middle of all of that. But it was such a great feeling just to meet everybody and, uh, you know, I, I've had such great experiences just meeting everybody. Another thing, I go into the Boston uh, Red Sox uh, clubhouse and I tell Kevin, I said, Kevin, I don't want to like these guys. These are our enemies, Yankees. You know, I don't want to like them. So I go in there and we do our thing like it, we did with you. And the guys were so great. Ortiz, I'll never forget him. Terry Francona was great. I says, man, I can't root against any players anymore. I got to meet all of these guys. They're all great guys. Uh, so I root for everybody now. As long as they're not playing the Yankees, I want everybody to do well. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? It, it is that way. And it believe me, it's that way as a player. And as you get older uh, and, you, and you're in the league a long time, you, you kind of by default through, you know, off-season uh, ventures or off-season, you know, uh, appearances, you tend to get to meet all the guys in the league. But, man, I'd love to just be on my team. And, you know, for most part, I was on the Reds and, and the Mariners. And, and I love to hate the other team. 
And I don't want to know you. If you don't walk the way I like, I can't stand you. And I want to, I want to, I want to beat you into the ground for nine innings. But as time goes on, you get to interact with these guys that you couldn't stand, especially pitchers. I never wanted to be buddies with pitchers because I felt like it gave them an edge. But you're right. I, I mean, you meet them and it's like, damn it, I, I wanted you to be what I thought you were. And you're actually a good guy. So I try to stay away from meeting guys on the other team as much as I could. Because you're right. For the most part, you know, what you see on TV, a, a bad moment, a, a good moment. Uh, most of the guys at the end of the day, I mean, like any industry, you know, you have your percentage of guys that really aren't good dudes. But for the most part, uh, they're they're all good guys. And, and I see what you're saying. You know, you're a big Yankee fan. You want to hate the Red Sox all of a sudden you're hanging with with those Red Sox going you know they're not that bad I kind of like them and now it it kind of takes your edge away when you're rooting for the Yankees like man you, you love to hate Ortiz now you met him and he was he was charming and you had a good talk with him and now you're not you don't hate him as much <laughs> yeah and he was a Yankee killer as you know man oh but, he was uh, good yeah. he was good but, uh, but a really great, me- great guy what a life you've had. Um, 2022. How's your life now? Got to be a lot more peaceful. <laughs> oh, Brett. You know, I, I'll tell you a strange thing that happened. You know, during the, uh, the first year of the pandemic, I had like, I don't know, 45, 46 speaking dates postponed, obviously, all over the world. And so for the first time, I'm saying, wow, this is the first time I'm going to be home pretty consistently you know, in 20 some odd years, because I traveled so much. And I really, I liked it. But my team said, you know, Michael, what are you going to do? I said, nothing, I'm going to stay home. They said, why don't you start a YouTube channel? So I said, I don't want to do that. You know, I'm not into the social media that much. They said, now nah, let's start it. So I said, okay, so we start the YouTube channel, you know, by grace, it just blew up. I don't, I can't even explain it, but it blew up. We're doing well. And I learned that, you know, YouTube, that platform is the most amazing platform in the world. I mean, look, I was fairly well-known, but I'm no celebrity or star. But now people notice you everywhere, wherever you are, no matter where you are. It's like, because you, like you said, you know, we got, you know, hundreds of millions of views on all different platforms that I was on. And something happened, Brett. Television series on my life. Uh, they're doing a stage play on my life that's going to play all over the world beginning in um, February of next year. Uh, and these are two separate things, the movie and the, uh, the, the television series and the stage play. I just wrote, a, uh, you know, my fifth book that came out in March. It ran right to the bestsellers list on both Amazon and, uh, and uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, they came to me a year ago to have a wine branded in my name. So now I have Franzi's wine that's now being sold all over the world. They just uh, launched it uh, a month ago. Uh, I'm doing a 25-city speaking tour this summer in the United Kingdom. Um, We start July 2nd, and just on and on and on. All of these things happened after the pandemic, and I I tease people. I said, you know, I've been working hard all my life. I said, first half of my life, I made a name for myself in a bad way. It wasn't good. I said, second part of my life, I cleaned it up and, you know, been able to get some people that support me. And it's taken me a lifetime to become like an overnight success with all these opportunities that are starting to come my way. And, you know, I just turned 71. So it's not like I'm embarking on, hey, I'm excited about all this stuff and we're going to get going. But, you know, I'm just very grateful, Brett, honestly. You know, you know, I got my family. I got seven kids, six grandchildren. You know, I'm married to my wife for 37 years. Um, and, you know, 
for me, it could have ended up a lot worse. I mean, I could have been dead or in prison for the rest of my life. And, and to be where I am now is just extremely fortunate. I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I have a lot of great relationships and, uh, you know, <laughs> what else can I say? I mean, it's just, it's life is good. All said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? You know, again, good family man, you know, that, uh, you know, I was really loved by my, my, my wife and children and that, you know, I left a good mark on people after a, a bad start. You know, it's, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. And, you know, people remember me the right way. Cause honestly, Brett too, I mean, wherever I go, people want to hear the mob stuff. I mean, there's such a fascination with this life all over the world. I've experienced it from Singapore to Australia, to Bulgaria, to England, here in the United States. And I didn't, cre- I didn't create that. That's Hollywood. That's the movies. That's all that other thing. But there is a fascination. It can't be denied. So I've been given that platform and people want to hear about it. And yeah, I, I got to talk about it because that's what they expect from me. But, you know, hopefully then we can get into encouraging people and making them realize, hey, I got out of a real tough situation. You can do it too. And so many people come up to me and say, Michael, if you can do it, I can do it. And that's really what we want people to know that there is another way in life. If you've been in a tough situation or you made some mistakes, you know, you don't have to live with them forever. And they, you, you can get a change in life. And it's, it's, uh, it's really satisfying with me for the last 20 some odd years. You know, I've devoted a lot of time to these young gangbangers. I do detention halls all the time, juvenile halls. I go into prisons and I really try to, you know, dissuade them from the street life and help them to get on the right track and, and make something out of themselves. And that's been really important to me. And I think we've had a lot of success in that regard because I have credibility. You know, they look at the mafia as the biggest gang in the world. And, um, you know, I have a lot of pedigree behind me that they look at and they say, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. And you have an impact on them. And, and that's what we've been doing. So it's, it's been working out and I've been very fortunate. Well, Michael Francis, it's it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on on the show. Uh, man, you're doing a lot of good out there, helping a lot of people. <laughs> what a life you've you've had, and and the life experience you have is is amazing. Um, but I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I'll be I'll be watching. You know, I, I'm reluctantly a Yankee fan now. By default, I've <laughs> got to be a Yankee fan. I know you're a real Yankee fan, but uh, I'll, uh-huh. I'll tell Aaron what's up for you. And uh, I, I appreciate it. And best of luck to you. You're starting this big tour starting in July, uh, going off on the speaking tour. Um, but yeah, this this was great. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we bring back in the voice of the podcast. Dan. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.